It's Monday, March 28th. You're listening to LA Podcast. I'm Matt Tinoco. Scott's taking the week off, and I'm joined today by Rachel Reyes and Alyssa Walker. How are you all today? Hi, Matt. Hi, Alyssa. Oh, very good. Hi, Rachel. It's the, it's been a little bit since I've done the top of the show. So at the very start, I'm like, oh, right, what do I say here? I have my notes, but there's a Patreon in the show notes. If you like LA Podcast, you can support LA Podcast by becoming a Patreon supporter. There's also a link to the newsletter, LA Newsletter. We just put out an issue. We're taping this on Saturday morning, and that's the time that the newsletter comes out. So you can see the last issue uh, in there where we talk about all the hip hop that happened last week, some of which you'll be hearing right now. And yeah, I'm really excited for our episode today. We're talking about lots of stuff, aren't we? Yes, a lot of stuff. Another another heavy week. Another week of stuff. Yeah, that's the way to put it. So with that, I was wondering if, Alyssa, do you want to start us off with an L.A. story? Boy, we had some interesting gas gasoline news this week. Um, Rachel and I, I talk about this constantly um, <laughs> as our as our token driver. Um, she and I were talking about, you know, this plan now at Gavin Newsom announced where he might just be giving $400 per car. Let's go. Limit to per household. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting your your gas money. And I like it. The the scene from Zoolander when they're all at the gas station, like spraying like gas on each other. Like that's what I envision the policy making <laughs> process being um, in the governor's mansion or no. Does he even go to the governor's mansion? He's like, no way. Probably not. I will never go there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't live there, by the way. Anyway, so um, part of the conversation is like his plan is to also send a bunch of funding to public transit to make it free for three months. And I do hope that our California supermajority, our representatives will actually try to talk him out of this and maybe put like more money towards transit and maybe even more money towards biking and walking uh, because just giving $9 billion out uh, while good and we should give people money um, is not you know, probably the best plan if that's what we want to do uh, to actually change our behavior. And Rachel asked, well, aren't, doesn't it not matter anyway from a climate perspective because aren't the buses just all diesel? And I said, well, that is an interesting question because I learned something new. I traveled to the Antelope Valley this uh, past week and got to see their transit fleet, which is the first fully electric transit fleet in the country. And they have 71 electric buses. They had like the first um, electric coach that a company made, you know, the bigger ones, like the commuter buses. They had the first electric articulated bus that had been um, put put into service. And it's really exciting just because the, they're so quiet and they're so zippy and they're all brand new. And they're made in Lancaster, in the Antelope Valley at a factory called BYD. So the coolest thing about what I saw was that there's all these little baby dash buses coming off the um, assembly line when I was there and 130 dash buses are coming to LA. It'll be the largest electric fleet in the country. So as far as like what we can do and what we could do quickly and scale up and maybe put the money in a place where it would make a big difference, 
we could electrify all these fleets and we could get them into cities and bus lanes pretty fast, Gavin, happening right in your own state. I love that. And yeah, and when I don't know things, I reach out to people like Alyssa who do know things. And (laughs) that was such an interesting conversation because I did not even realize A, that that was happening or B, that that was happening in our backyard, like that they're they're manufactured here. That's incredible. Yeah, it's where way and and like the, you know, northern Los Angeles County high desert of a quite red part of the state um, is actually taking the lead on all of this stuff, which is really, really remarkable. So you can read my story. They'll be out uncurbed um, probably by the time you're hearing this. Didn't didn't you say that it was Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, yes. represent, who represents, I believe, Lancaster. I mean, I don't remember. What yes, he is like team came to the press conference where they announced that this uh, amazing milestone had been uh, reached and everybody's giving speeches and talking about, you know, this green future. Like he's, he's worked to protect, you know, the BYD factory and, and uh, you know, make sure it got a bunch of incentives for being here. And then he goes to Bakersfield and does like a press conference in front of like a drill baby drill. <laughs> So they're lying. They do those things, but they're actually supporting a just transition. They are. Kevin McCarthy, our savior. <laughs> he's, he's, he's in. He's in, I swear. Rachel, what about your L.A. story? Well, <laughs> sadly, uh, I was at Costco yet again, filling up my <laughs> gasoline fueled car and um who among us i want to shout out yeah who among us? i'd like to shout out two different groups of workers the first group of workers are the people directing traffic at the marina del rey costco they had three different employees um yeah just like directing traffic in and out of for the, gas because of people trying to yeah, get gas wow. because the lines were so long gas there is 559 all around like my apartment, it's like 669, 6.79. Um, so folks are obviously going to where it's cheaper. And there were just like lines of cars waiting. So, you know, I'm sure there's people upset. These workers are getting yelled at. So, so I want to shout out to the Costco gasoline workers in the marina, but also right next door at the In-N-Out. Um, after I filled up, I went to In-N-Out for some brunch. And the workers there are always super happy. Matt's laughing. Yes, I had in and out at like 11.15. It's oh, fine. I love that. A good in and out brunch. <laughs> that is, you are speaking my language. This is good. I'm laughing because I'm seen. I'm a, I'm a valley girl. What do you want? <laughs> um, they're always so quick, so, so fast. Um, and when I got to the window to pay... There was no one there, but it was fine. It was sunny. I'm vibing in my car. I have my dog. Life is good. And the woman like rushes to the cashier and she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was like helping, um, I was helping someone back there. And I was like, you're fine. It's already really busy. Like, don't worry. And she's like, you'd be surprised how people talk to me at this window. So I just want to say, again, be nice. Um, And shout out to the in and out employees in the marina, as well as the Costco employees there. That whole complex deserves a shout out. They're working hard and, you know, just making people's lives better. So thank you to the workers. Waiting in line for gas just seems like the saddest. I mean, 
Yeah, it's pretty low. I don't blame anybody, but that's just like, I mean, it just seems, it's like picking up your kids from school, idling in that line, right? It's the same. Mm. You're just like, what are we doing? (laughs) (sighs) Gotta be there. It's also for me forcing the question of how expensive does it have to be for me to change my habits as somebody who doesn't really drive that much, but definitely drives more than I absolutely need to. But my habits haven't yeah, changed Yeah, I drove yet. the Lancaster. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a, but that's a haul and that's, you're actually burning several gallons yeah. of fuel to do that. To yeah. Go. Although Metrolink is changing its schedules in April. So I would have been able to make the trip. But right now the trips are all just based on commuters going, you know, into LA, but they are adding mm-hmm. more trips on Metrolink. Praise, Good. praise, praise Metrolink. <laughs> Um, for my LA story, I, I don't think I've said it on here before, but I have pretty nasty seasonal allergies, just like everybody else, basically. Um, and unfortunately, so my story is that I'm going to the allergist next week, which unfortunately means that I have to detox from allergy medications. So that apparently antihistamines have a, uh, withdrawal symptom of a nasty headache, which I didn't know about, but now it also means I have to exist in spring in Los Angeles without any of my, uh, controller medications. So I'm basically bubble boy right now and just hiding in my house (laughs) with my like air filters. And yeah, you're just like draped. (laughs) You've got like a, just a towel over you and the HEPA filter. Yeah. Very much so. Continuous seal. Yes. (laughs) I'll go out on a walk and like, hopefully it works out and sometimes it does, but then sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So then, so it's really just a two first. I'm looking forward to next week when I can also hopefully have an allergist say, don't, uh, have an allergist say, uh, we can, we can do better than, than your, uh, dosing on Allegra, which was more than it needed yeah. to be. So look, microdosing, yeah. you've been microdosing Allegra. Again. Macro dosing Allegra. That's the <laughs> macro, macro do- dosing. <laughs> There's no micro about it. <laughs> Nothing micro. And the, maybe the rain will help or maybe it won't. I don't know. Uh, the rain should help. It, when we'll it's cooler, it's, you. it's less, less stuff in the air and less grass That's stuff in true. the air. So Monday yeah. should be, I guess uh, the day you're listening to this, it's probably raining outside if you're a Monday morning listener, but yeah, hopefully a lot of rain. Yeah. So that's a uh, fingers crossed this works out. Okay, we're going to get to the news here in a second. But first, we want to make a correction to something that was said on the show last week. Uh, last week, we oversimplified Yasmin Pomeroy's decision to withdraw from her candidacy to represent Council District 3 in the West San Fernando Valley. The show incorrectly attributed it to gender-based harassment. But in reality, Pomeroy's decision to withdraw was more about her ability to support her high school classroom students. So in the show notes, you can find a link to her statement. And then as the saying goes, we regret the error. Thank you for calling us out. Please continue to always do that. And I think with that, now we're going to go to our first big story of the week. So the mayoral debates are coming fast and furious now. There's like (laughs) three to four per week. (laughs) Like all of a sudden... Um, if you want to see mayor's debate, you could probably catch one um, near you. Uh, and on Monday, there was a forum um, was focused on homelessness um, held in Valley Village. And I'm going to just start with a clip. Um, this is Theo Henderson, friend of the show, um, a podcaster at We the Unhoused and uh, an activist in residence at UCLA. And here's what he had to say. Um, during the forum. Just some ninjas forever. Like you're doing now. 
because you're claiming that all how people are criminals, are sex addicts, and trafficking children. And this is what is the problem with what here. All of you are housed. You have no experience of what it looks like to live on the street. So stop the nonsense. Where are the unhoused people to put these people to task when they run up on them without covering the sweeps and displace them? What happens when they throw out an elderly person out of the same place where Kevin DeLeon is saying he is offering services? Because he has, she has memory issues. That is not the services. So stop the line and stop the script. Right. Okay, so I want you both to keep in mind what Theo said for the rest of the episode because I think it really guides um, both the problem um, of these debates, but also uh, of housing policy in general in this city. And this kind of going to be a theme of of a lot of what we speak about. Um, You have this forum on homelessness. There's no homeless people asking questions. And then when protesters come in and try to bring that point up, Um, they often have to resort to yelling (laughs) to be heard, um, and disrupting when their perspectives are not included. Um, so going back to this forum, they made everyone leave. You know, this is not the first debate, uh, where people have, uh, disrupted, uh, the proceedings. We talked about this a few shows ago, but again, um, do we have any kind of uh, democratic process happening when it's just a room filled with people talking to each other instead of mm-hmm. the people maybe posing questions or uh, pressing people to make more substantial policy positions? I don't know. Like, I, it just seems I, I don't know how much these debates are actually teaching us <laughs> about the, um, the candidates themselves. So then... On Tuesday, um, we had another debate. The first one where Rick Caruso deigned to appear um, came out of that, uh, you know, cheesecake factory in the sky (laughs) and came down (laughs) to see us. Um, And this was very different in the sense that uh, the audience was invitation only. It was held by USC uh, and hosted by... uh, Alex Michelson of Fox 11 and Erica D. Smith of the LA Times. Now, it's interesting that this one was the most like controlled from, uh, uh, you know, a gatekeeping aspect. <laughs> um, but I cannot think of a single moment of substance in the entire debate. The only thing that sticks up in my mind, sticks out in my mind is that they asked Rick Caruso what his favorite TV show was. And he said he didn't know. Didn't have an and, like, answer. And looks out into the audience and is like, I think his wife to be like, hey, help me out here. So is confirmed. (laughs) He is indeed an animatronic character. Poorly programmed. The AI is not working. (laughs) I particularly enjoyed uh, the moment where Buscaino pulls out his rosary beans. (laughs) Just Uh. as someone who was also raised Catholic, I felt that in my soul. Um, Oh, whew, it like sent chills up my spine. Um, <laughs> He's like, I could get but, that endorsement from I the know. Vatican. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, look, he has to fight for everything he he's he's gotten. So, um, but it, that's obviously going to go to Crusoe. So I don't I don't really know what he's waiting <laughs> it's on. True. It's true. <laughs> the the real highlight, or I guess maybe it's more of a low light, 
was a take published by one of the moderators of the debate, Erica Smith, uh, in the paper of record, which was a lot of things. Um, The headline was originally, quote, we had a real L.A. mayoral debate. It can happen when idiot protesters don't spoil it, end quote. And then it just went on from there. Um, uh, (laughs) What is there to say, Matt? You know, I mean, the the ableism in the headline, number one. um, But yeah, talk to us about the column. Yeah, I mean, distinct the the headline, which it it seems like it changed and then changed back because it's still there and then it isn't there. But then it was owned on Twitter as like, this is the word that I intentionally picked. Um, Mm -hmm. I think which is not good and not good that that would make it past uh, an editor. No, not at all. But I guess the bar is low Um, on the floor, as somebody else said. But I think the the. Even just like staying within the headline is it's like this was a real mayoral debate, which is to go right. Like, again, it's like a mayoral debate for who? So this is a closed event inside USC's Bovard Auditorium that's invitation only. I guess in the same way that there's literally nothing memorable um, aside from little moments that say nothing about their politics or policy. That was kind of basically what happened again on Tuesday. But then it's just this whole, like, to go back to the column is, which is, I think there's so many things to be said about the column, but like, I, there's, there's lines where it's something like one of the lines that stuck out to me was that uh, this was a, something to the effect of this was a, mer- a real mayoral debate because there was no option for, for basically the quote is they couldn't, the, the mayoral candidates couldn't be quote shouted down by hecklers in the audience insisting they're legitimate act, uh, legitimate activists then they're hecklers. Yeah. Hecklers. And, and it's like, this is obviously, there's a lot to unpack and we'll get to a little bit more here in a second, but it's just the thing, the little moment that stuck out to me the most during the actual debate was this single question that was asked directly by Erica Smith. She was asking a question to Joe Buscaino sourced from Instagram. And I'll just play this right here. This question is for Councilman Buscaino. This question is from Kobe Bryant for life. All right. Um, And I, and I quote, Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. Um, How will you hold police accountable so they stop killing us? Well, that's, that's a deep question. Now, Joe Buscaino's answer to this would be, he started going on about how like LAPD officers are our guardian angels and whatever. But like, remember the question is, the question is like, be, by being asked like in this forum, I actually took a moment and I was like, I appreciate that you asked this question. Thank you. I suspect another moderator probably would not have asked that question point blank in like, probably the most watched Merrill forum so far. Like this was, this was the first one that my parents just like San Fernando Valley voters, um, like watched. Um, and then when you go into the column, it's like, it's such a contrast to, I'm just going to, I'm going to quote, this is me quoting a quote. And then right after, I mean, if you've read it, you probably remember this, but just quote is, this is quoting somebody who was quoted in the article. It's, I decided to protest because every one of the people in there is a lying bastard. Will, by Will Sens said that. They're supporting measures that are having people killed on a daily basis. Smith's column responds to that quote with just an uh-huh. Now, I cannot reconcile those two things because, like, the argument that we have public policy that is leading to preventable deaths 
basically the argument that Sens is making, is something that Smith seemed to echo or Smith seemed to, like, I guess, quote unquote, legitimize by saying it in this debate. But then it like just gets erased in the column after. I don't know. It just made my brain melt because I just don't understand like. I don't, I don't know. I just don't get it. And then I guess there's lots of other things and to be nitpicking about that. But then there's ultimately this sort of point that she says like a couple times in there, it's like, I struggled to write this column. I struggled to write this column again. And then it's like kind of to the point where it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't write the column then. Maybe like, <laughs> and that's going into something more about like where I have some like sympathy for it's like you work for a media institution and your bosses want you to put something out. So you just put something out and then you kind of fall columns. on that sword. That's no, true. <laughs> yeah. But like, and also to, to include Will sends in that particular quote, um, someone who was displaced from Echo Park Lake, uh, who, which we're going to talk about next, but to include the name of someone and not even acknowledge that it might potentially be a quote unquote legitimate activist and even one who had experienced the homelessness that you are talking about um, at these events. You know, the caller reminds me of something that Karen Bass said in the first televised spectrum debate. This is one of the reasons why I decided actually not to run again and to come home, because I've been so concerned about the level of discourse here right in Los Angeles. And I think that we are at a crossroads. We could go in two different directions in our city right now. We could turn toward each other and solve our problems or we could turn against each other. And so I'm saddened to see this happen today. And I hope that they find a more constructive way to participate. I had hoped we at this point in 2022 would have moved past this need for decorum and this obsession with being nice to politicians and being nice to candidates because it doesn't work. When you're nice to people, it doesn't work. We have been nice to people for decades, for hundreds of years. They've (laughs) continued to kill us. They have continued to not house our neighbors. They have continued to deny us health care. Like being nice doesn't work. And it doesn't get us funding for the things that we need. And it it is just, you know, Matt and I were talking, well, we were talking about like the nonprofit industrial complex, right? Like being nice to our politicians and working side by side, elbow to elbow with politicians who like don't actually help and don't solve the problems. And the longer we continue to be nice, the longer our problems will exist. And so it, it just, uh, it frustrates me. Like there is no constructive way um, to participate. And so all of all of this is to say, like, who is this debate for? Um, like what Theo said above, it's not for unhoused people. Um, and to that end, in the column, she said that the voters, Erica Smith said the voters lost um, and that she had this hard time writing it. As Matt said, then don't write it. And I also feel like, I don't know, I don't like the use of voters versus hecklers, um, because we're all residents of Los Angeles. We're all neighbors and all of our opinions should be listened to and weighted equally in the same way that I would not want to hear a debate about abortion access uh, being had by people who can't have abortions or will never have an abortion. Um, I don't want to hear debates about unhoused people and what uh, solutions we should have to house them without unhoused people being in the room and being put front and center. Um, So it was just incredibly, it was an incredibly frustrating week um, as a resident of the city. Um, And 
yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Because anything else I say will not be nice. And <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. It will be considered <laughs> illegitimate. Uh. Yeah. yeah, you will not be a legitimate activist. Matt, you wrote about this uh, Zoom. It took place on Zoom. So I guess the, the standards are a little bit different. But you wrote about um, another homelessness focused debate um, for the newsletter. Uh, and again, you as you pointed out, um, they were asked questions about homelessness and we maybe did glean a little bit of, you know, a, a little tiny nugget of their policy differences. Um, but at the same time, you have no people who are actually impacted by these policies they're talking about um, who are giving feedback or able to ask questions themselves. Mark Horvath pointed this out from Invisible People, how frustrated he was because um, it all seemed like they were trying to like, you know, make nice with the funders instead of actually introducing, mm -hmm. um, you know, real life-changing things. And I'm sorry, but homeless people in the city are a constituency and mm -hmm. the candidates need to treat them that way because guess what? Nothing is going to happen to change anything unless you're actually housing people in a way that they want to be housed. It's not going to work. But then it's like, what is legitimate in our local political forum? And I'm just like, I don't actually know. But then it goes to something that's like, okay, are the only form of like legitimate interests that are represented is like business trade groups and like homeowners associations. And like, mm -hmm. aside from that, what does in the framing of the article, a legitimate activist actually look like? And I don't have the answer to that question. And that question's not answered anywhere because it's it's clearly dismissing a bunch of other people who are doing activist work, but then who are being dismissed as illegitimate. And I don't, and like, it's just, it's just undefined. And like, practically as a matter of the U.S. Constitution, like, everybody can have like free speech is like, it's just, it's a constitutional right. And that's effectively what's right. going on in this setting. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't figure out what could be more legitimate than literally Theo's title, which is activist in residence, maybe because it's a UCLA position and USC was like, well, we don't recognize that title here. I mean, this is just, and it was funny too, because the, the headline got changed to say, you know, profane protesters, as if that was like the worst thing that could happen that someone might say the F a, word. Bad word. a bad word. I mean, like what? Um, sorry, I don't know. Maybe you'll get fined for broadcasting it or something. But I mean, it. it and then another really, I think, kind of disheartening thing is, um, you know, I'm sure I will never be asked to to moderate any debates in the city, but. Um, they had like a postmortem um, where Alex and Erica were, you know, talking about her column and they're laughing about it. And like, okay, to go through this whole experience that we just went through, getting all this feedback from people um, and to, to still like think it's like funny. I mean, and we saw that with the mayors on stage too. Um, mm. They, even when, you know, when these, they, they make their own little, little jokes all the time, but they are literally laughing at the people that they are supposed to serve. Isn't it funny that you can't go into Los Angeles City Hall unless you're a billionaire campaign donor? Isn't it funny <laughs> that like the campaign, the uh, field offices are just abandoned and that uh, any calls, letters, emails just are completely unheard? And isn't it funny that literally the only way to be heard is to get in an elected official's face? And then they run away or to or to appoint the uh, reappoint someone who used to hold the office for a long time in a potentially mm -hmm. legally. Um, 
I know. Meanwhile, they're all literally getting investigated or indicted by the U.S. attorney, yeah. which is just like a cherry on top. Rightfully so. Uh, huh. Yeah. So that's a good segue into our next segment, uh, which is about a very important anniversary that we are commemorating. Um, on the day that we're recording this, uh, one year ago was the day that we all woke up or some of us got very, very little sleep and looked out on a completely empty and fenced off Echo Park Lake. And we wondered uh, how long it would be that way. Uh, And we'll talk about that (laughs) specifically. But to just recap of of what happened a year ago, uh, this was the, the three day police operation that ended up removing at least 183 people um, from where they were staying in around uh, Echo Park Lake. Uh, I, I could say there were probably dozens more people that left before the actual day of the operation. So it's it's really, the, even the numbers we're going to talk about today are, um, are just ones that got entered into Lassa's system. Um, but there are many more people that heard the park was going to be cleared and left, even though it was something that, as you remember, Mitch O'Farrell's office refused to deny right up until the point where there were literally cops in riot gear walking down the street um, and would still not say what exactly was going to happen. We had people who were forcibly removed um, from the lake and we heard about six months in after the the operation that only four people were permanently housed. That was data from Lhasa. Now we have this really uh, comprehensive report from UCLA researchers at the Luskin School's uh, Institute on Inequality and Democracy that really just goes through first of all, like what happened in, in, in great detail, but also did the first and most comprehensive uh, job at trying to track what actually happened to 183 people who were entered into Lhasa's service system. So Matt knows a little bit more about how this actually works. Can you just explain really quickly, like what, uh, how, how you would get those, that number and how you, how they would be tracking them? Sure. So the 183 number is the number of people who a year ago, um, and maybe a year ago and a couple months, because the the whole operation took a couple, I think it weeks to months from the beginning to they the say end. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it involved. It's basically it, people who are outside or in a vehicle who were entered into the coordinated entry systems, the the HMIS. I don't actually even immediately remember. It's like the Homeless Management Information System. That is probably what the acronym stands for. Basically, the computer case management system in Los Angeles County that um, is how people access services or get prioritized for accessing certain kinds of services or vouchers or emergency shelter interventions or whatever. Um, So 183 people were um, basically entered into that system a year ago. And now a year later, what the the inequality and the UCLA Luskin Schools Institute on Inequality and Democracy, what their researchers were able to look at was basically, okay, a year in, uh, what are the results from LASA, from the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, which is the uh, main uh, homeless service, it's the government homeless services agency for Los Angeles city and county. And what they found was a year on, 17 of the 183 people have actually made it into permanent housing. That is not a shelter space, not like some housing intervention, but basically are now tenants in an apartment unit where their name is on the lease. 
that is what housing means. Um, and that is basically anything other than not having your name on a lease is not actually permanent housing, even though you might be like in a temporary ho- like unit or something like that. Everything else is considered a like shelter or temporary solution. But 17 of the 183 people have actually made it into housing as a contrast to what uh, our elected officials, Garcetti, O'Farrell and, and the whole gang were basically saying. Like, I remember even like on the night of Mr. Buscaino was like all 200 people have been moved into housing, which is just a complete lie. It's just a complete fabrication. Um, where we are a year on is 17 people who left the lake have been moved into housing. The other numbers are 48 people are still in a temporary shelter program of some sort, which is in all likelihood mostly going to be Project Room Key Rooms, the the temporary hotel rooms. Um, 15 people of that initial 183 people are confirmed to have returned to the street. Six are somewhere else, uh, probably like a hospital or, a, or like an institutional, like a hospital or jail. Those were the two um, examples included there. And then the last number, which I think is the most... It's just the most, it's just how it is um, for homeless services in Los Angeles County is that 97 people of that initial 183 have just dropped off the system completely. They have been disappeared. Lhasa doesn't know where they are. They are not currently engaging with the homeless services system locally. And practically, it's just a giant question mark as far as where these 97 people have gone. Um, Presumably, they've just gone somewhere else, um, which is, I guess kind of the goal, right? When you think about the the underlying, the goal is not to provide housing. You can see that we've only provided housing for 17 people. Um, and then several, like almost five times as many people as that have just kind of vanished and like people don't know where they are. And presumably people have gone back to the street. People have maybe like left the state or like wherever. It's, it's just people move and go somewhere else. Um, but yeah, that's, those are the numbers on, on what was the practical... Uh, I guess, humanitarian consequence of the Echo Park Lake closing was that 97 people went somewhere else and then 17 people got an apartment, which from from 183 and presumably more because there were more than 183 people. Um, and some people didn't choose to um, like go Engage into the system. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and it really is a striking illustration too of of data that we talk about a lot here on the show is that um, the report said that six people had died um, who had been at uh, Echo Park Lake. And then hours after they published the report, a seventh person died, um, which again, like you said, like this is just something that happens and that we have accepted as a city and a county that um, we are going to allow to continue. And I, as far as like, when you when you read the report, um, and there was a little press conference, like a Zoom press conference, um, where Ananya Roy kind of went through some of the findings and you got to hear, um, about, you know, how they, how they did it. Um, you hear, uh, her saying, um, this is as fucked up as it gets. And I thought that was a quite accurate assessment of the situation. And then, um, people who went to the mayor's office for comment on the report, because it was you know, widely reported, um, this is what they said. Our housing operation in Echo Park was a success. And it was highly encouraging because it showed that through hard work and collaboration, we can transition whole encampments into shelter quickly and humanely. And that would 
be just not the way I would describe anything about this report, the response, uh, and anything that's happened the entire year since. And we'll talk about that in a minute when it comes to um, parks and public spaces. But I just wanted to kind of remember a few things about about the night. Matt and I were actually together on the night that um, everyone got arrested or most of the people got arrested. I think people... There were arrests. There were there were things throughout the entire um, time, uh, the entire three day period. Um, Matt, what do you, what are some of the things that you remember the most about um, about this time? I the first answer I had when I was thinking about it was the sound, um, the sound of the helicopters, of which there were so because Alyssa and I were not in the. Like we, on the, on the night that the arrests happened, we showed up basically too late to be in the- We just happened to be, yeah. I mean, we were right there and we were, we were just showed up like a couple of minutes, a couple of minutes late enough that we got pushed to the, to the West and people who were getting arrested were just to the East on sunset. So it was just a remarkable timing on our part to not be in the- in the kettle. Yeah, no. And, and like practically by that point, I, uh, I don't know if, I mean, had they declared an unlawful assembly or not, I don't remember, but like the, we could not cross the police line, even like with media, like even with police media credentials, there was no, there, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and all, as all of this is going, so basically we went back to the area where there were other broadcast media, like the media area, which is far away, couldn't see anything going on. Um, we could see people getting put onto to buses, taken to jail. You could see people getting put on the buses into the into the, <laughs> a great, a great the paddy view wagon. Of that. Um, yeah, and and then it's the sound of the police helicopters and the media helicopters, which is just this sort of totalitarian sound. It's just all encompassing. Mm-hmm. You couldn't. It was just. It was just everything. Um, I guess we could have. Maybe we have a little clip here. So the the helicopter sound was one of the things that I, it kind of just sits with me most fully in terms of like totalitarian to me is the correct word because it's just this entire like state media apparatus that's like now beaming out the images of this whole thing to everybody across Southern California. But then as I thought a little bit more about like what I remembered um, at the very like distinct the the police, the policing and like the police and media and the police and protesters and like the curtailing of free free speech and all of that is that I remember as we were walking around that night, there were so many people just sleeping on the sidewalk in the immediate vicinity of the park. And it's people who left the park who have nowhere else to go. Presumably there's, they don't have anybody else there for them. And now it's sleeping in a crevice of a building on Glendale Boulevard. And there were I remember talking and listening to a lady who was pretty mentally unwell and like she, she was just there on the sidewalk. Um, and like, there were a bunch of, I mean, this is how Los Angeles is, but it's presumably a bunch of people who had just been moved from the park and now are sitting on Glendale Boulevard with like, and that's where they spent the night and presumably are some of the 97 people who have gone somewhere else because I don't know, but it was just like, it's just like, this is, that's what sits with me the most because like for all the, and I think this was actually articulated to me because I did some of the reporting. I did some reporting on this for for a national news publication um, 
And I remember talking to a a a man whose whose mother was in the park. Um, and she was one of the last people to be removed from the park. This was a, it's a, an older woman. She was in her sixties and, and he was, he was, he, he, his, his perspective was, I look, I get that everybody you have, like he was, he was almost kind of annoyed at the people who were protesting because he's like, look, I just want to get my mom. And like this, like, this is like, she is in the park. He came out to go get her. And like, he's like, I get that you want to protest this. This is all fair because this is obviously a fucked up situation, what's going on. But then it's like the the humanity of like, I don't know, the 30 or so people who were slept, who slept that night on Glendale Boulevard is just like, I mean, it's at once everything, but it's also just like strange because it just like kind of gets, it. I, it's like, it's just in terms of how homelessness in Los Angeles works, it's just is disappearing people, which is where it's like, I'm getting into the, like, it's, it's, it is, it is, you kind of use the vernacular of like a genocide in terms of like, this is actual just erasure of people. And, and like, that's a very, it's just very frightening. Um, And like, I know that this is nothing I'm saying here is new or novel, but it's just like, it's just heavy and like continues to kind of just I don't know. It just sits on me because like practically like the status quo hasn't changed whatsoever. The city of LA is doing exactly what it did at Echo Park all over the city every single time. And it's just trying to disappear people. And like, that is actually the correct way to say what our government is doing. Like it is a state created danger. And in terms of like where you can connect that people have died because of a, uh, because of a state intervention an intervention on behalf of the city of Los Angeles funded for by like my sales tax and like tax dollars, which is just like grotesque, but that's, I don't know. Yeah. The, the helicopters were the best reminder of that as you were sitting there and they were like, at no time was there fewer than like eight helicopters in the sky for like three days. Um, and the, yeah, I, I think about that sound all the time because it was just like, it, it was a real, it, it was this, this, this visceral feeling um, that was really contributing to the chaos. And, and I, I remember, Matt, when we were walking around at the end of the, I mean, first, like trying to, anybody who was trying to get information about their stuff or a family member or trying to find a friend who had been inside the park, pure chaos. Like you could not get any answers anywhere. Um, and the police were blocking like every path to a, a service provider. People were being told to walk with their stuff a very far distance to get help or you know, uh, uh, they were giving like uh, storage pods out to people, but like nobody knew where they were. I mean, it was just a complete, it was a complete disaster. And I'm sure the police will say they had to do that because of the protesters, which the protesters would not have been there if the police, so many police had not been there. 400 cops. Um, but the other thing that really sticks in my mind, Matt, at the end of the night, yeah, when we were walking around, you know, hours after the the park had been closed, and um, just people were just setting up their tents like a couple blocks away or, you know, just settling in for the night um, just right nearby and just really feeling like this was nothing was going to be solved here. And the other thing I really remember is that when uh, we did a, the Vox did a, a podcast on their um, on their daily show um, today explained. And, uh, I was interviewed for the podcast and I mentioned that 19 journalists had been 
arrested, uh, arrested or detained. And the people from the podcast were like, that can't be right. That can't possibly be that high of a number. And in fact, um, uh, NPR did a, a report this week um, talking about uh, how significant that number was. Um, and there's a U.S. press freedom tracker that that tracks arrests of journalists. And it was the largest number of arrests that the tracker has documented in a single day this is in the United States. And the number of journalists arrested um, at that um Echo Park is, represents 25% of all the journalists that were arrested in the entire country last year. So what a legacy, LA. Great job. Um, you have outdone yourself. <laughs> and that, I mean, just to look back on that and just be like, oh, that's, that, that is what this resulted in as well. Like what you were talking about, Matt, just like this pure, p- very uh, obvious effort to suppress the truth of, of what happened. Rachel, what was any memories of yours? Um, well, I was explicitly asked by my last, by the director at my last job to not participate in protests or anything related to city council um, or the mayor. So prior to working at the nonprofit, I was regularly going to like the mayor's house and other council members' homes to protest various um, grievances <laughs> and was asked to not do that. How because, profane of you, Rachel. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, <laughs> the idea was like, you have to work with these people in your professional capacity. So if they see you outside of their home, it's not a great look. So when all of this is going down and I was watching, you know, everybody's IG lives because most of my friends live on that side of town. I said to my partner, Stephen, like, do you think we should go? You know, but we like have a dog. We could probably leave her here. And then we just continued to see things escalate. And I thought like, I probably am like not allowed to go to this because of my job, because I, yeah, I was just like, I don't, I don't think that they would yeah, I just I felt I felt like I would get fired for going to this. So I didn't go, which is unfortunate. But this brings me back, you know, to what I was saying earlier. Like, these are the people, the council members, Mitch O'Farrell. These are the people that the L.A. Times wants us to be nice to when they're responsible for the deaths of seven people at this point um, and a concerted effort to disappear hundreds of people. Um, and this served as a blueprint. I remember saying this at the time to Steven, like when we were watching all these videos, like they're going to see how much they can get away with, how much money they can waste, how much time and effort they can waste. Um, and to see what's going to happen because they're going to keep doing this. (laughs) Like this is the first of like a really intense militarized operation throughout the city. And that was something that I just kept thinking about. Like, this is just the beginning. This is not like, you know, the end of anything. This is the first of this that we will see and feeling really sick about that. And now having these numbers, this incredible report, um, like, I don't know. I was like silently crying earlier when we were talking about them, all of the numbers, because it's, it's sad. Like these were people who built a community to keep themselves safe because the city refused to do it. And the city is still by and large refusing to do, to do that, to keep people safe and to house them. And 
these are the people that we are told to be nice to. Um, and that's bullshit. That's really fucked up. And like these people deserve to be yelled at. Our mayor deserves to be yelled at. Uh, there was a opening of a, a tiny home village this week. Um, and I didn't see this really reported that much, but, um, and we'll talk a bit about where some people have ended up, but um, at the opening, there got, you know, these same elected people coming in to do the ribbon cuttings and stuff. And uh, someone was filming, an activist was filming and asking Kevin DeLeon questions and he grabbed the phone and it looked like it hit the person in the face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean- that is really bad. How to, dare you touch to, me on my phone? Touching somebody? Yeah, I mean, so I, I just like Matt and I talked about this the other day. Like that, we see this as kind of like an inflection point this week, um, and just with real and and real anger and really deserved anger. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as where we go from here, it just seems more bleak than ever. When you look at, say, for example, part of the stories that we saw reported, there are 500 people living in the Grand Hotel downtown right now with no, no pathway. We, you know, maybe this, this ratio of who ends up in like permanent housing, like you said, with a key and a, and a lease um, you know, do a few more of those people end up in permanent housing over the next year? We opened our 10th tiny home village. We have hundreds of people living in these 64 square foot shelters, temporary shelters. People have been in them. Some people have been in them for a year. They were not supposed, they were not designed that way. They were designed for 90 day stays. Um, we had a big fire in Oakland and in one of those same villages, um, three pallet shelters just melted. Um, I wrote a story about it and I was very concerned about like, okay, we're going to keep these up and keep adding to them for another year. One of the um, other fires that occurred in one of these villages happened because a wildfire got too close to these shelters and they're just not made for people to live in them <laughs> for longer than like a few weeks. Um, and so what, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? I think about, um, the, the schism between the official success and the reality failure. Um, because <laughs> if you ask any of the 183 people who touched the service system with relationship to Echo Park Lake, um, I suspect even the 17 people who actually have gotten a leased housing unit at this point will have a lot of complaints. Um, and, and when I say complaint, I don't mean like little complaints, but like, these are people's lives. And it's like, this is my bodily safety, um, complaints. And then like to, to the, the importance of listening to the users of the system of like, like the, in terms of our public policy, that 97 people just disappeared immediately is, is to say that, or not immediately actually, um, but like over, over, like in one of the numbers that was actually drawn from this, from the report was that of, of the, of the exits from temporary shelter, because there were more people who were moved into mostly the Grand Hotel, a project room key site right after the lake. Um, 55 of the people left within the first three months. And that's left almost entirely to somewhere else that is not a, uh, that is outside of the system. And it's like without 
without l- understanding why the people left, um, there we're just going to stay exactly where we are. And there's very little, there's a, some attempt and there is some awareness because there's lots of people doing their absolute best to try and right this great wrong that's going on. But it absolutely isn't the elected officials who are going around parading saying it was a great success. We're going to build more tiny homes and that's going to fix it. And that's not going to fix it. And like to some extent, like this is also bigger than what the city of Los Angeles can do and what the county of Los Angeles can do and even the state of California can do. Like I'm very much of the opinion that like the federal government needs like the federal government needs to intervene because this stuff goes like the city's housing policy is like bad and like we need to do zoning and like housing needs to be more affordable broadly. But also when it comes to the American social safety net, that stuff is outside of the realm of the city and county of Los like for L.A., And as stuff that needs to be accounted for, because also a lot of the homelessness policy is governed by federal stuff Um, that hasn't Mm -hmm. changed since like 1997. And so here we are, Mm -hmm. Um, all of which is to say the uh, perspectives of the users of the system need to be the key and and most important uh, feature of designing and, and, and producing a sort of system that architecture works for people, as opposed to where we are basically right now which is basically just ensuring that like um, nonprofit social service agencies have grants for next year. That is kind of (laughs) like when it comes to who are the electeds talking to, it's not the people who are using the system. It's the system's managers. And, and that's the main flaw. And then the system's managers get to be heard by making a direct call to the elected official to figure out what to do about this particular encampment in this particular council district. But none of the people who actually live there are heard unless it's like literally a media op uh, where where the where the candidate or elected goes out to go shake hands. And then like the next day, like there's a sweep or something like that. Like it's just yeah. it's it's horrible. And and that's the only way to say it, because mm-hmm. that's what it is. I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. yeah. I described it as. I described someone was like, okay, well, what is, what is 4118? And I was trying to say that it was just miniature echo park situations happening all over the city on any given day. And I think if you've noticed, and I've definitely noticed this, like just people who have very few belongings, um, looking very, like looking very displaced, um, it's because this is this is happening all over the city now. We had in Little Tokyo last week um, kind of a, a similar showdown, I would say, not as large scale, but um, Toriyomi Plaza is now fenced off in the same way. Who knows how long it will be fenced off. Um, Lisa Kwan wrote a great story at LA Taco just talking about how it was some of the legacy businesses in the area that just basically gave an ultimatum to, you know, city leadership and said, you get these people out of here now. And we are just scattering people from one place to another. Um, and we, this is, is no way to make progress. Which, which that scattering is a function of local government. Like, I don't yeah. think the city of Los Angeles can solve homelessness, but they absolutely can stop making it worse, which is what happens mm-hmm. every single day. Um, the mm-hmm. sweeps displace people. It makes, it, it decreases resiliency it frays social connections, which are extremely important between other people who are outside, as well as also like people who are ambassadors of the system, because there's lots of caseworkers and social workers who are actually trying their best to write this. But then when your client gets swept away, you don't know where they are. And that's that. Um, 
But yeah, that's that is firmly a state created danger, as the city of Los Angeles loves doing with lots of other things, whether it's like pedestrian deaths or police shootings, like all it's all the same stuff. Yeah, it's all related. And when it comes to housing in particular, I think it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah, um, there is a new study, Alyssa, showing 55 percent of all people in California were concerned about paying their rent or their mortgage. 41% of all people who make under $40,000 a year were very concerned about rent protections ending. Um, And we haven't gotten all of the relief money to people. It's like we're we're on a cliff. The end of this month is going to be a disaster. Yes, yes, it's coming. It's going to be worse than anybody imagined. I mean, this is also just the thing to, um, for, for, homelessness, the issue is always that there's more people. It's not static. Like when, when people fall to the street, they either leave the street or they pass. Like it's, there's, Mm -hmm. it's like also recognize when you see somebody who's in really bad shape, they're close to death. Like that's what happens because it is a material fact that in Los Angeles County, five people a day die outside or in some condition of unsheltered homelessness. Um, and, and when it comes to actually addressing what's going on, the solution to homelessness is not hiding the people who are close to death outside. The solution is to make sure that a third of Southern California renters are not paying more than half of their income on rent, which is right, right. Mm-hmm. the act, mm-hmm. which is which is a pre-pandemic number, by the way. That is a number from 2019. What I just quoted that a third of all renting households in Los Angeles and Orange County pay more than half of their income on housing on rent. And, and I don't know what it is now, but like it's without addressing that, the massive circumstances of economic precarity in Southern California and like everywhere. This is not just Southern California, but like um, it's the entire country, um, which is I think is going to be an interesting thing to see over the next 10 years, particularly as kind of everywhere has this sort of, oh, my God, is our housing market like California's now? Yes, it is for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. And like the same yeah. thing that happens in Los Angeles and San Francisco and, and the Central Valley is going to be replicated everywhere else. Um, maybe that'll get the federal government to do something. I don't know. But like, yeah, without re- without reducing poverty, everything's just going to stay as is, which is pretty sad. But like, um, we, I guess we, I guess we'll fix it. Like that's what there's literally no alternative. Well, We're going to build back better. It's never, was, it's never happening, is it? It's never <laughs> happening. <laughs> We're never getting it. Well, on that note, I guess we can end the show on a, I don't know. Speaking of those people in power who have the authority right now to do something. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's bring it back to that. How are they using their time, Alyssa? Uh, Let's talk about how, how somebody could maybe fix some more of these problems um, uh, might be here for longer than we thought. Um, so another senator, we talked a few weeks ago about how an Iowa GOP senator, Chuck Grassley, placed a hold on Garcetti's nomination as ambassador to India. And this week, um, uh, the other Iowa GOP senator, Jody Ernst, became the second senator to place a hold. So the implications of this are are, are kind of big now because... Um, then the confirmation will require of a floor vote um, uh, for the Senate for the nomination to proceed. 
Um, and before that, uh, Matt and I did a special emergency episode that we put out on Wednesday. You can go listen to it where we talked about uh, the independent investigation that was commissioned by the city attorney um, outsourced to a separate law firm to look into the allegations of sexual harassment um, that uh, occurred in City Hall uh, in response to a lawsuit of uh, LAPD officer Matt Garza, uh, who alleged that he was sexually harassed for years by uh, Garcetti's top advisor and top fundraiser, I think we should also call him um, Rick Jacobs. Um, Matt, what were your thoughts to, just to, uh, to go through what we uh, what we talked about? Yeah, we're just doing a little summary here. And if you really want to learn more about this, it is like we we examine it on, on the Wednesday episode, which is the show immediately prior to the one you're listening to in the LA podcast feed. But basically the investigation, uh, it interviewed 26 people who were in or close around the mayor's office it revealed the, the episode we we in the episode we basically break down some of the new information that this report investigation brings up, which there is new information that we have not publicly known about at all until right now, and then and then it raises some pretty dicey questions when the conclusions of this independent lawful investigation are compared directly to under oath deposition statements made by the same people that the investigation talked to. There's there's um, there's differences, I guess, in between the version, like subtle but also not so subtle differences between the version of events that is um, the version of events of like specific things that happened. Like there's there's two versions of like what happened in a an elevator in a in the U.S. Senate in I think it was 2017. Um, of all places, yeah. And and what's interesting too that after we recorded that episode, um, it was. Uh, discovered that there were actually two other versions of this report that were updated in the subsequent months. The report came out, was finished in February. Obviously we didn't see it until now, February of last year, 2021. But then there are two other reports dated April and July, which is interesting because there were uh, depositions given during that time uh, by people who uh, have very different uh, accounts than than what is included in uh, the report. And those depositions are omitted from the report, both versions, uh, which is showing that it was actually very incomplete. If you would be reading these depositions or even reading news stories about these depositions at the time, um, they were not included um, in these other versions. So meanwhile, the lawsuit is still going to go to trial um, eventually, um, and the lawyers told us that they are preparing to depose um, 20 or more people. So, you know, we're going to have this going on, the mayoral race, the profane protesters. It's going to be an exciting few months um, to see what happens in this city of ours. Do we get more than one or I'm sorry, not more than one. Do we get more than two or three U.S. attorney indictments before the end of the year of a public mm, Like how many how many wager. U.S. attorney uh, indictments are we going to get before the November election? Or are we are we we could do um, indictments versus uh, metro projects, metro mm. rail projects that will open? Are we going to have multiple? <laughs> we get one indictment and the regional connector, mm. you know, which which uh, which one are we taking? I bet it's 50-50. I bet we get two and two now. <laughs> two and two. Yeah. Oh, that's really... By November 2022. 
Okay. I like it. Mine's going to be one and one. One and one. (laughs) Keep it simple. Rachel's like, just get that, you know, just get me some electric buses and I'll be, I'll be happy. You don't even have to, you don't even have to build a a train line. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, This is LA Podcast episode 219. Don't forget to go back and listen to 218.5, which is this week's emergency episode. Uh, thanks to those who have subscribed to our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA podcast. Everything we do on the show is funded directly by our listeners. Thank you for sharing what we do. We love to see your tweets and all the feedback on what we can do better. Um, so until next week, bye. Bye. 